Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. He was a brilliant speculator. He always knew. Uh, he, he was the first of the great capitalists. He, he invented trading techniques that uh, are, are normal on Wall Street today. That's Harlow Giles Unger, General of the American Revolution contributor and author of the new article, How Robert Morris Saved the American Revolution. That's a big statement, and he brings the evidence to back it up. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of the new book, Cabal, The Plot Against General Washington, by Mark Edward Lender. Available now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're going to do a biographical sketch of sorts about one of America's most important founding fathers, Robert Morris of Pennsylvania. Robert Morris's story is uniquely American, and I don't say that lightly. Uh, Robert Morris uh, will come to the United States as an immigrant. He'll come here very poor. Uh, through a seemingly impossible series of jumps driven by the opportunity presented by the New World and a lot of hard work, Robert Morris will become the richest man in the New World. Uh, And he's uniquely American because he wasn't like the Fairfax family uh, of Virginia. He wasn't one of these families that came from old money in Europe. Robert Morris was a self-made man. And he parlayed that wealth and that power and really a a self-made prestige into some of the highest posts in the new American government. Really a fascinating story. Our guest today, Harlow Unger, will talk about his new article, which he says very boldly in the headline. And after you hear the interview, of course, it'd be hard to disagree that Robert Morris, quote, saved the American Revolution. That's a big statement for a historian. And when you make a statement like that, you have to bring hard evidence to back it up. I think you'll be convinced. But it gets to a lot of other questions about uh, our interpretation of the founding generation or the revolutionary generation. We've already talked about my personal feelings about the term founding fathers, in a way. It makes very human people seem almost divine. Um, it makes people who are driven with uh, agendas and uh, and uh, certain personal ambitions uh, and personal stakes in the revolution seem very benevolent when really they're like any other political class. But it also gets to the heart of money in politics. You know, a lot of people today view money in politics as a flaw of the system or a glitch of the system. Uh, And the Supreme Court has said in the Citizens United case a few years ago that it's actually a feature of the system, that money equates to speech. Uh, And I'm not certainly here to make some sort of political statement about, you know, money in politics, except to say (laughs) uh, that, at least in the United States, it's always been there. 
And Robert Morris is a very good example of this. I mean, this is a man who made himself because of the blessings and opportunities of the new world. And he didn't parlay that into abandoning ship when the revolution looked like it was reaching its darkest days. Uh, He parlayed that into actually loaning, of course, with the promise of a reimbursement with interest, uh, to the revolutionary cause. Not because it was a sound business venture. I mean, there's a lot of other probably much more sound business ventures than investing in a rebellion that was looking pretty, pretty bad at the time. But he invested in it because he believed in it. And that's very important. So today, when we map out our sketch of Robert Morris, uh, think about his legacy. Think about how, how he should be remembered. Um, and it goes to show, once again, that this revolutionary era is just so much more complicated and so much less black and white. In fact, it's very gray than we tend to think. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Harlow Giles Unger. Harlow Giles Unger, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Tell us about your background. Well, I'm uh, uh, a former distinguished visiting fellow in American history at George Washington's Mount Vernon. Uh, I've been a uh, journalist and uh, historian all my life. Uh, I uh, am a graduate of Yale University, and I, I actually got in on on legitimate SAT scores. Uh, no, 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 uh, nobody else involved but not myself. And um, I've written uh, more than a dozen biographies of America's founding fathers, among them Lafayette, Patrick Henry, George Washington, obviously. Uh, John Marshall, and uh, most recently, Dr. Benjamin Rush, uh, and my book on Thomas Paine will be coming out in September. What first drew your interest into the study of Robert Morris and his life? Uh, Well, uh, I've been uh, working on a book about Robert Morris for some time, and I hope to have that finished in another uh, year or two. Uh, He, uh, Washington, uh, names him as the most important uh, person, uh, most important uh, uh, person involved in the Revolutionary War. Without him, it's very doubtful if we could have won the war. Certainly, we wouldn't have had the money to win the war. Uh, Congress ran out of money uh, during the first year. They were they were really bankrupt uh, by the time uh, the. Uh, uh, Washington, by the time the British troops arrived in New York Harbor and invaded Brooklyn and finally Manhattan and took over all of New York, uh, they had they, they had printed their own money, but the money, the value of the money uh, fell to zero and uh, nobody would uh, give them any kind of credit. Uh, Washington and the Congress called on, on Robert Morris. He was arguably uh, the richest man in in America at the time. He was uh, a the first of of the great uh, international money traders, and uh, he uh, he was based in Philadelphia with his partner. They had a a trading house, which means that they bought and sold all uh, a wide range of commodities and uh, and finished goods as well. Uh, shipped them 
exported uh, what what America produced to foreign countries and imported stuff from from those countries. Uh, he uh, established ledger credits uh, it, with similar merchants all over Europe and eventually uh, over most of the uh, of the world, even as far as China. And in doing this trade, doing the trading, he violated the. Well, he didn't violate. He. Uh, uh, abandoned the principle of mercantilism where you have to own uh, where you try to own all the products you buy and sell uh, he simply uh, made deals in which he would buy stuff in the future and sell it in the future so that when the when the uh, commodity came to port when the uh, person who produced the commodity brought it to port and put it on a ship uh, Mars then took possession of it in a sense, uh, but uh, gave it up right away the minute it landed in, in its des- at its destination port, so that he never really owned the products uh, he bought and sold. He, what he did own was the money, and in doing so, he became really the first uh, uh, capitalist in the world. Uh, mercantilism, which had been the the standard form of, of economics at the time required the host uh, a nation like Britain, for example, to go and conquer other other territories to gain possession of uh, gold and silver and lumber and all the basic commodities. That's why they 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 settled in North America. The Spaniards uh, took over Spain to try and get the gold and silver mines uh, under their control. Well, they did get it. Uh, uh, Morris said, this is foolish and very, very costly. Uh, just make a deal with the people who own the stuff and, and, and find a seller somewhere else and then ship it from one place to another. Uh, it was the beginning of capitalism, and he made a fortune. Uh, now, the actual cash didn't necessarily transfer from him uh, to to the buyer or from the uh, seller to him uh, they were the, the cash was uh, done the cash transfer was done in the form of ledger credits so that when he shipped uh, something to England uh, the merchant in England who took possession of it would give Morris Morris credit on his ledgers and Morris could then use that to buy goods through that trader and bring them to America or send them to some other buyer in, in the Caribbean or elsewhere. In this way, he built up enormous credits all over uh, Western Europe, all over the Caribbean, uh, all over uh, the, the uh, Western Hemisphere. And uh, obviously, he did get some gold, and there was some transfer of gold and silver along the way. But when the war broke out, Congress went bankrupt. They automatically turned to him. No other merchant. Uh, there were other merchants in Congress, of course, John Hancock being the most famous name. Uh, when they transferred, when they needed, uh, when they ran out of money, they turned to uh, uh, Morris, and he became uh, the superintendent of the tre- of the treasury. Uh, which at the first gave him very, very little power because everything was done by committee. So everything he wanted to do, he had to take it to a committee. Uh, finally, he 
with Washington's help, uh, for, forced Congress to abandon uh, the committee system of approving everything. And it, they made him the actual sole uh, 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 treasurer of the United States. And he was the first uh, true executive in, in the history of the United States uh, in the Continental Congress. Uh, there was no president, of course, uh, but uh, he was the equivalent of a secretary of treasury and with total control over the economy. Uh, he uh, immediately was able to uh, arrange for uh, ships uh, from France to bring over arms and ammunition using his credit uh, to uh, gain uh, get those shipments. And uh, three of the ships that sailed over, two of them were, were uh, spotted by British uh, by the British Navy and sunk, but one got through to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and uh, the people in Portsmouth uh, set up a wagon train and took uh, a shipload of arms and ammunition. Uh, they got as far as Bennington, Vermont. At the time, the Americans were being killed by uh, uh, General Burgoyne and the British troops coming down from Canada, and the arrival of that ship uh, and with the arms and ammunition and the wagon train that took it to Bennington came as the Americans were firing their last shots. Uh, it, they rearmed, uh, that, that shipload rearmed the Americans, and they scored the first really major, major victory of the war at Saratoga, uh, defeating Burgoyne and capturing 4,000 British troops. This is really such a fascinating part of the story. Could you talk about Robert Morris's uh, arrival and his immigration story to the New World? Yes, uh, he was uh, born in the slums of, of Liverpool. Uh, the the only thing is, uh, father, well, his father uh, uh, reproduced like a bunny rabbit. They had all sorts of half-brothers and half-sisters. Uh, he was the only one that the father actually gave him a name of Robert Morris Jr. <laughs> he gave him his own name and then sailed off to America when uh, Robert was just a, a, a wee boy. Uh, his mother abandoned him, and uh, he was raised for a few years by an old lady who was not really identified. Uh, a lot of uh, biographers in the uh, early uh, 19th century uh, made up stuff or imagined stuff as they went along, uh, as Parson Weems did with, with George Washington and with the stories of Washington throwing the silver dollar across the uh, Rappahannock River and chopping down the cherry tree, all of which, which all of which was mythology invented by Parson Weems. Well, uh, most other biographers did the same thing, although they didn't exaggerate that much. And uh, Morris's first biographer uh, uh, imagined that this old lady might have been Morris's grandmother. That's perfectly possible, but uh, unlikely. Uh, at any rate, he wandered around. He was just one tough little guy in the slums of of Liverpool working the docks as a as a thief, a pickpocket, anything he could do to uh, get some money, some food, and survive, uh, until finally his father, uh, who had crossed to America, fled his debts in England and, and crossed to America and set up a trading house in uh, Oxford, Maryland, which doesn't mean anything, uh, doesn't mean much to anybody today, but it was a, a, a huge tobacco center, tobacco trading center on Chesapeake Bay at that time. Maryland was a huge tobacco producer, 
And uh, like uh, some of the other states, uh, the tobacco growers didn't know about rotating crops, and tobacco uh, eventually uses up all the nutrients of the land. Uh, so that uh, eventually Maryland disappeared as a tobacco state. But uh, at the time, it was a huge producer. And Robert Moore Sr. set up a trading operation there and did quite well, uh, away from uh, the people that were hounding him, debt collectors and people like that in Liverpool. Uh, He did quite well in this country. And he noticed that the other merchants uh, that were uh, well-established all had their uh, and son uh, at the end of their names, <laughs> uh, John Jones and son. Well, he wanted to be like the other uh, respectable people and decided to send for his boy, uh, Robert Morris Jr., and he tacked on uh, Robert Morris and son on his sign, and that uh, gave him some some more credibility. Anyway, the boy arrives. He's 13 years old. Um uh, his journey across the ocean is, is he never wrote a word about it in any of his uh, uh, memoirs, uh, but it could not have been pleasant. Uh, he did arrive, and uh, at 13, he's starting to grow up, and uh, his father starts telling him what to do, and, and they didn't get along at all. And finally, the father uh, gets the boy a job, uh, actually sells the boy. Uh, into an apprentice, a, a, a bonded apprenticeship, and uh, in uh, in Philadelphia to get rid of the boy, get him out from uh, under his hair. Uh, as it turned out, so so now the boy is is bonded. That's essentially like a slave, an indentured ser- uh, servant uh, at this trading house in Philadelphia, uh, uh, Willing and Company. And the the old man, Willing, who ran the trading house, uh, he had a boy, uh, a son of his own, but the boy was still in boarding school, in private boarding school in England, learning to be a gentleman. And young Morris came on like uh, like a young genius. He, he knew he had worked the docks so much in Liverpool that he knew all about trading. He knew... Uh, trade talk in a number of languages, and he worked like a dog. Uh, he swept the floors in the counting house. He helped load the ships and unload the ships. And uh, one day, lo, uh, a ship comes in uh, with some flour uh, to be sold in America. And because Morris could speak uh, somewhat, speak, he understood Dutch and French and Spanish and the other languages spoken on the docks. Uh, he, learned, he, he learned that flower, flower shortages had developed in Holland and that prices were going up. So uh, w- without having any <laughs> authority, uh, he buys the flower off this ship, uh, uh, feeling that prices are going to go up. And uh, he then goes around and makes deals with other uh, warehouses uh, along the along the uh, uh, Philadelphia docks, and buys more flour. And sure enough, the next ship that comes in is looking for flour at any price. The flour flour prices shoot up, and he made a fortune for himself and for 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 the old man who had taken him on uh, uh, as an indentured servant. 
And when old man Willing came back, uh, he put his arm around the kid's shoulder and, and decided he was going to train the boy uh, so that he'd, he'd be a, a good junior partner. Uh, uh, about a year or two later, uh, Willing's son, Thomas Willing, comes over and knows nothing about trading. He's been gone to a boarding school uh, in uh, in Britain, so he's grown he's grown up a, a proper British gentleman. Uh, he spoke French, of course, because that was de rigueur in those days. Uh, but he knew nothing about trading, and young Morris uh, becomes his uh, guide, and they become close friends. And when the old man dies, uh, young Willing makes. Uh, uh, Mars, his partner, and off they go to the races. They build a company into America's largest trading firm. So it's a rags to ri- a brilliant rags to riches story. Very exciting, very emotional. Uh, as uh, Robert Morris uh, trains Thomas Willing to be a, 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 a great trader, and Thomas Willing trains Robert Morris to be a proper English gentleman. So much so that uh, uh, Willing introduces him, uh, introduces his pal Morris to uh, the most elegant, uh, the equivalent of the most elegant debutante in Philadelphia. Uh, they fall in love and marry, and now uh, Robert Morris is not just the uh, the greatest trader in Philadelphia. He is hobnobbing with all of the fine gentlemen, and is part of. Uh, what we now call Republican Society of uh, the Revolutionary War. Throughout the Revolution, Morris, and he does disagree with some of his colleagues, is very pro-Union. Could you talk about how he became involved in Congress and maybe a little bit more about his ideology? Well, it's the same thing with with all the founding fathers who were all uh, uh, what we would call capitalists. In a sense, they were plant. The Southerners were all owners of huge plantations, tobacco, cotton, rice, uh, and the Northerners were bankers like John Hancock. And suddenly, uh, some guy from Britain shows up and wants to collect taxes. Well, they had never paid a penny in taxes in their lives, nor had their parents uh, or their grandparents. Uh, they had come here, uh, settled the wilderness, uh, done you know, cleared the forests and the lands, and planted the, and 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 kept all ran, ran their properties as they saw fit, and kept all the benefits. After all, they took all the risks. They uh, 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 insisted on keeping all the benefits, and suddenly uh, the the British wanted to collect taxes. Well, that was unheard of. They'd never paid taxes in America. And they weren't about to do so then. So uh, it had nothing to do with with uh, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It had to, it had to do with liberty, uh, strictly liberty, and uh, uh, liberty meant liberty from taxes. So uh, Mar and Mars has one of the richest men in America, probably the richest men in America, and willing uh, were among the first to protest the Stamp Act. Uh, which imposed the stamp tax, and Parliament repealed it, and then the next uh, efforts to tax uh, uh, kept, the number of efforts kept growing and growing and growing until eventually you had the Tea Party in Boston and then the massacre at Lexington and Concord. Uh, By then, uh, Willing and Morris were the uh, leaders in the Philadelphia Society 
in the uh, opposition to taxation. And if necessary, they were willing to uh, raise an army, uh, which uh, they did, uh, and support. Uh, Washington, of course, was, was hu- owner of a huge plantation, uh, tobacco, uh, wheat, all sorts of commodities, and he was just as opposed to taxation as everybody else. Uh, so that's how they got involved. It had nothing with, with uh, freeing anybody from uh, slavery. Uh, after uh, remember, after the Constitution was signed, uh, uh, seven years, uh, six years after uh, we made peace with Britain, and we were now an independent country with a constitution all our own. Nothing changed from the days when the British ruled. Uh, uh, slaves were still slaves. Women still had no rights. Children had no rights. They were considered chattel or property. Uh, only property owners could vote. Uh, so no one, no, one, no one even got the vote other than uh, the, pe- the, the, the people uh, who we now call founding fathers. Uh, South Carolina, you not only had to own property, you had to have 10,000 pounds. That's about $30,000 at the time in the bank, cash, to be able to vote. Uh, so nothing really changed. And uh, these, these were uh, the, the opening words of the Declaration of Independence, which are not in the Constitution and have no legal status, of course. But those opening words were just garbage. Uh, no one believed them. Uh, even Thomas Jefferson didn't believe uh, that uh, all men were created equal. And uh, the minute uh, the uh, Declaration of Independence was signed, uh, other, others pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. Jefferson ran away <laughs> to his home in, in the, on the mountaintop in Virginia and never fired a shot against the British. So, so uh, uh, he was hardly, uh, uh, no one really believed in, that, in those words. They were taken, Jefferson took them largely from uh, John Locke's Rights of Man. Uh, and uh, they they had no meaning to, to, in the lives of, of the founding fathers themselves. In the title of your article, you say that Robert Morris saved the American Revolution. Uh, how does he do that? He paid for everything. He, he paid the troops. He bought the arms and the ammunition. Uh, we had we had no arms and ammunition here. We had a, a little bit, but uh, these are mainly, our, our troops were mainly farmers and hunters. Uh, they had muskets. They didn't even have most. Didn't even have rifles. The British came over with rifles. Uh, they, they 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 had uh, muzzle-loading muskets and a limited amount of arms. Uh, it was very very fortunate that uh, uh, Patrick Henry and leaders of some of the other states. Uh, had formed little bands of rebels and raided uh, British uh, uh, munitions dumps, uh, so that they—that's uh, exactly what happened up up in the uh, Boston area, and that's why the troops, the British troops, marched out of Boston uh, uh, to—they were going to Concord, where uh, the uh, Minutemen, as they were called in Massachusetts had raided uh, British arms depots, and now uh, the British troops were going were assigned to go out there and recover those arms. Uh, they stopped in, in Lexington briefly, uh, not, not 
to get any arms, but John Hancock and Samuel Adams, uh, who had been leading the, had been rabble-rousing in Boston and had uh, instigated the, the, the Boston Tea Party, uh, were hiding out in Lexington. Uh, John Hancock's uh, uh, uncle was the minister there, and so they were uh, hoping to get safe uh, harbor there. And that's why the troops stopped in Lexington, and the Minutemen were waiting for them, collected on the green, and uh, and, and you had the little skirmish, which uh, was called a massacre, which basically it was, and uh, it really ignited uh, the, the revolution. But the troops marched on to Concord to try to ca- recapture the arms and ammunition that the Minutemen had captured, had stolen from the British uh, depots and uh, uh, by the time they got out to Concord, the Minutemen had formed uh, a, a wall of snipers behind the stone walls that uh, de- that uh, uh, demarked uh, all the properties in that area, and they were forced to retreat back to Boston. Uh, never found the arms, but that's how uh, we originally armed our troops. And uh, by the time uh, 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 they, we were absolutely we were destroyed in Brooklyn. Uh, the, the British tr- British Army, th- two hundred thousand of them landed in Staten Island and then destroyed uh, Washington's troops in Brooklyn. Eventually, chased them out of Manhattan, out of Westchester, and they fled across uh, Jersey uh, until they reached. They had across the Delaware uh, for safety. Uh, by Christmas of 1776, and uh, we had we had no no arms or ammunition. Um, we were really uh, the, the war was lost, and uh, it's only because Morris was able to, uh, uh, with his de- ledger credits, able to uh, buy arms and ammunition from the French and uh, some from uh, Spain. And even some uh, smuggled from uh, English islands in the Caribbean. Uh, he had credits everywhere, and and it really uh, financed uh, the revolution until the French finally came in uh, in '78 uh, and uh, extended uh, three million pounds uh, more credit uh, to the Americans. Uh, but this uh, ran, ran out very, very quickly. And again, uh, Morris had to arrange for financing. Uh, he uh, uh, arranged for another million and a half uh, in gold and silver coins from France to be shipped over. But by then, uh, Washington was planning the attack on Yorktown, and he gathered his army north of New York City. Uh, the French army had landed by then. They came down from uh, uh, Rhode Island and, and gathered north of New York City. And the plan was to make to feint an attack on New York, uh, which would draw the bulk of the, the, of the British troops into the New York area. Meanwhile, uh, Washington was to uh, to lead his army down to the south, down uh, down Chesapeake Bay, and ca- and capture uh, Cornwallis's British army in the south. Uh, that's exactly what he was ready to do, except he had no money to pay the troops, 
and the troops refused to move out of the encampment in New York without money. Uh, Morris was out of money. They were, they, he had no more money. And he came up with a plan uh, and printed his own money. Uh, a lot of people printed money in those days. Uh, if you were, uh, the first guy to do it was Benjamin Franklin. And uh, when everything was on a barter system in small town, small cities of America at the time, and if you went into a merchant and he knew you, he would he would take your written IOU, and you'd pay him back with your with whatever you grew. If you grew carrots, you'd give him a bushel of carrots, whatever whatever that IOU was worth. But the IOU wasn't really worth anything. You, uh, you couldn't buy anything with an IOU if you went out of town. Nobody knew you. Uh, well, the troops were not about to take IOUs from George Washington. So Morris printed notes that looked like today's dollar bills with his picture in the center of it. And $1,000 was called a big bob, and a $100 note was called a little bob. And the troops accepted it because Morris was so well known as the richest man to them, the richest man in the world. And they accepted that and marched down to Yorktown. Well, didn't march all the way. They got to the head of Chesapeake Bay, where Morris had arranged a, a, a small fleet of his ships. He had a huge fleet of ships to carry them down Chesapeake Bay, uh, down to uh, the Virginia Cape uh, that led to Yorktown. Uh, so uh, that, that, that's why Washington called him the, the most important uh, person in the Revolutionary War, and. Uh, indeed, there's a statue, I think in Chicago or somewhere, uh, of him standing uh, between Robert Morris and uh, uh, Haim Solomon, who was a Jewish uh, broker, money broker, and that uh, Morris used consistently. And he, too, was a patriot who uh, risked his life uh, to save the revolution. What do you think the legacy of Robert Morris should be? from a revolutionary perspective? Uh, next to Washington, the most important person in the American Revolution. Uh, he saved the rebel, he paid, he paid the troops. He, he paid the bills uh, for the American Revolution. Congress was bankrupt, uh, the nation was bankrupt, the troops were bankrupt. Uh, he uh, came up with the money and indeed uh, as I said in my article for the uh, Journal of the American Revolution, I think it's it's the headline. Uh, Washington called what what Morris did magic uh, art magic. Uh, he, somehow he came up with millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, in, in gold coins and silver coins, uh, and printed his own money when 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 necessary. Uh, by the way, he printed. He printed over a million and a half uh, Morris notes, as they were called, the big bobs and little bobs, knowing that a million and a half dollars in gold coins and silver coins were on their way from to, to, from France. So he knew he'd be able to cover it. He was a brilliant speculator. He always knew. Uh, he, he was the first of the great capitalists. He he invented trading techniques that uh, are, are normal on Wall Street today. He bought and sold futures. He did currency swaps 
uh, he invented arbitrage, buying and selling the same commodity when there's a when there's a spread in in the price of that commodity between two markets. Uh, he invented all those techniques that uh, capitalists of the late of the industrial revolution and the 20th century all used to get rich. Uh, he was the only man in the world who did it at the time. Uh, so he was a far-sighted man, a brilliant. Uh, a self-taught uh, economist, historian, a strategist. Uh, he was the world's first capitalist, the first, certainly the first great capitalist. And he saved the American Revolution. And, and Washington gave him full credit. Uh, Washington and he were, became very, very close friends as a result uh, Mary Morris later uh, uh, accompanied Martha Washington up for the uh, after the inauguration, uh, and uh, George and Martha Washington and uh, Robert and Mary Morris would go on uh, fishing. Just the four of them go out on fishing trips together. Uh, they were inseparable companions. The four of them, uh, Washington uh, uh, adored Morris for the risks he took uh, to. Uh, help win our country's independence from Britain. Harlow Giles Unger, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.